Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to, to open your word and to learn from it. We ask you to show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 15. We're going to be talking about a lot of cities today, which is why I gave you a map so that we can try to pinpoint where, what we're looking at. Verse 1. The burden of Moab, because of the... Because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence, because in the night Ker of Moab is laid waste and brought into silence. He has gone up to Bijir and Dibon, the high, the high places, to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Medibah. On, on all their heads shall be baldness and on every beard cut off. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets every one shall howl and weeping abundantly. And Heshbon shall cry and Ele their voice shall be heard even unto Jahaz. Thereof the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar a heifer of three years old, for by the mounting up of Lehith with weeping shall they go up, for in the way of Horanamim they shall be raised up to cry of destruction. For the waters of Nimrin shall be desolate, for the hay is withered away, the grass fails, there is no green thing. Therefore the abundance they have gotten and that which they have laid up shall be carried away to the brook of the willows. For the cry is gone round about the borders of Moab, and the howling thereof unto Eglaim, and the howling thereof unto Beraim, and the waters of Nimrod shall, fell, shall be full of blood. For I will bring upon Nimdon lions upon him that escapes of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. All right. Not a very happy picture. So we're going to start out with first... Moab. Moab is the country that's named for Lot's oldest daughter's son. All right. If you remember the story of, of Lot, he was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife and his two daughters. His wife looks back, is turned to a pillar of salt, and then he goes up and hides in the mountains and is never planning to ever leave the mountains. And his daughters are with them. And they decide that because dad has come up here and he never plans to leave, they get this plan of making him drunk, sleeping with him, and they end up having two children out of the deal. One of them becomes Moab and the other is going to become uh, Ammon. And so here we are talking about Moab. When Remember when Israel was coming out of the land of Egypt, they did not go straight up the coast to go into the promised land. God took them the long way around so that they could learn to depend on him. And then when he brought them to the border, they said, no, we're not going in. Well, when they finally get ready to come in, he goes, they ask for permission to go through Moab. And the king of Moab says, no, you can't go through my, through my town. And he sends his army to the southern border to make sure they don't come. So they had to go around Moab. And then they asked for the next Ammon, and they said, no, you can't go. And God said, no, you do not touch them because they are family. Mm -hmm. All right? It's a long, circular route that they're family because, remember, Lot is the nephew of Abraham. That's right. Okay? So, but God says, no, your family is going to be protected because he is they are family. You're not going to destroy them. Later on, God's going to allow their destruction. And this is what this prediction is about. Moab has been giving Israel a hard time. Every time they turn around, they're invading into Israel. And they were doing this from the time of the judges all the way through the kings. David put them into subjection for quite a while and made them pay tribute. But after David died, they started lo loosening up and, and making more attacks on Israel. They never owned anything in Israel, but they kept attacking them. And at this point in Isaiah's time, Moab is a fairly strong nation. And if you look at the map that I've given you, Moab is this whole area to the southeast bottom side of the Dead Sea. All right? That's Moab. Uh, 
And Ammon, if you look up, you keep going north, it's between Gad and Reuben on the, on the east. So those are two places that they weren't allowed to conquer. But God says the burden of Moab, the oracle, the prophecy against Moab is what this is all about. Moab is getting a prophecy that says, I'm going to destroy you. God says, I'm going to destroy you. You're going to suffer. And so we see this coming in. And he says, Ar of Moab is laid waste and brought into silence. Ar is not on this map, but if you look under this one that says A-R-O-E-R -E on, the, on the eastern part of it, okay, uh, between Ar and Ker Hasareth. Between those two places, they believe the city of Ar existed. Okay, uh, and so it says it's going to be made waste. It's going to be spoiled. Okay, and this is and if you recall the idea of to spoil something is in the in the middle of war, when you conquered something, you took everything of value away from it. So this city is going to be spoiled. Everything of value is going to be taken away. And remember, we've talked about this during the war in this day. The biggest part of their pay, they would get paid a little tiny bit for showing up for war by the king, but the big part was if you won the battle, you got to take everything that the enemy soldiers had, their animals, their jewelry, and these guys, for some reason, wore jewelry into battle a lot, and gold and silver yeah. and stuff, you know, and I don't know why, I guess it was to show how rich you were and how powerful you are, but when you lost, you lost everything, and your family lost everything, and that was part of your pay. Uh, in Second Kings, when, when God killed the 185,000 Assyrians, it said that it took them months to gather up all the spoils. Right. You know, and they didn't even have to fight. The angel of the Lord killed them. So all they did is come out of the city and gathered up all these jewels and, and chains and everything. But God is saying, Ar is going to be spoiled and brought to silence or desolation. Okay? And if you think about this, have you ever been in a place that's supposed to be noisy and loud and, and you go there and it's not? Every once in a while when I cross the prison and, they, and they've locked down the yards, it's kind of a spooky place to go. There's nobody moving anywhere. Right. You know, and it's just like, okay, these guys are supposed to be out. There's supposed to be movement. There's supposed to be noise. This is what it means to be silent, silenced. The, the town has been completely obliterated. You know, there's, there's nobody moving, nothing going on. And then he goes on and he repeats this. Because in the night, Kerr of Moab is laid to waste and brought into silence. And Kerr is short for this little town, Kerr Haresheth, uh, on there. So he says, both these towns, and they would have been well-known towns. And we, we look at this and we go, you know, what, what's the big deal about these towns? Who, who's ever heard of them? Well, it would be kind of like anybody outside of this area, and even in here in Arizona, when you say you're from chloride. I don't know how many people you've ever talked to, they go, where's chloride? Mm -hmm. You know, they only live 20 mile, you know, 25 miles away, and they go, where's chloride? Okay, For, this is how we're looking at these. You know, where are these places? They were known to them in that day. In our day, they're like, well, yeah. Who, who's ever heard of these places for the most part? And one of the larger towns, one of the older towns, and most of the people in Arizona, even if they've studied Arizona history, don't know where chloride is. Right. So... And this is why I get the maps. When we talk a lot about cities, I want us to be able to look and say, okay, yes, this is what we're talking about. Remember, last night we talked about them making the reference of it was known from Dan to Beersheba that Samuel would be, the, 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 be a prophet. Well, to us, most of us don't understand what Dan to Beersheba means. And remember I told you that would be equivalent to us in America saying from New York City to L.A., everybody knew. Okay, from, from one end of the country to the other end. Dan was in the far north of Israel, and, and Beersheba was in the far south of Israel. And that's what, it was, that's what it would mean to say from Dan to Beersheba. And it was a common phrase. You'll see it oftentimes in the scripture. So when you read that, basically they're saying everybody knows. Right. It, it was common knowledge. It was known from the top of the country to the bottom of the country. And so here, I just want to point out our little, our little towns. But he says, these two towns have been spoiled and, and have been basically conquered. They've been silenced. There's no movement in the town. And if you go into a town, if you go in, you know, you see about the things about a town after a riot or something, you see this kind of 
activity. Everything's silent. Everything is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 2. He has gone up to Vizhah and to Dibon, the high places, to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebal and over Medibah, and on all their heads shall be baldness, and on every, and every beard cut off. So he says he's gone up to Bijah, and Bijah is a, a town that they really don't know, but they believe it was a town that had a great temple to the Moabite gods, which is what he's saying. They went up to Moab, they went up to this town, and it's a high place. Remember when we've dis discussed, when you read the word high place, it refers to where they are worshiping idols in most of the cases. But he goes up to the, the temple of their gods, and he says they're going up to the temple. So we have these two cities up there, and they're places where the people would go to to worship. He's saying, okay, now you're suffering, you're going to go to your temples. And remember, Israel had this same mentality. If something was going wrong, they would run to Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem will never fall because God's temple is here. It will never fall. God will never let his temple be destroyed. And yet we find out that when Babylon comes, they come and destroy the, the temple. In Jesus' day, they were saying the same thing. With this new temple, no, it will never be destroyed. And then Rome destroys the temple in Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. And so God is saying the, the people of Moab are going to run to these, these great temples of their gods, and they're going to pray. They're going to, they're going to ask for help. And we see this so often. Remember, we've talked about during the 10 plagues in Egypt, each one of those plagues attacked one or more of Egypt, Egypt's gods. Okay? Right. And this was done for two reasons, as we said. It was to show the Egyptians that the Israelite god was stronger. But it was also to show the Israelites that their god was stronger. Because they had been for 200 years in Egypt... And they didn't have a Bible. They did not have a text to read. All they had was the stories of Abraham, the stories of the creation. Uh, they did not have the Exodus story. They did not have Leviticus. They didn't. So they had these vague stories of a God who, who was doing things 400 years earlier. And God says, I'm stronger than what you're used to. Many of them probably were worshiping Egyptian gods because they had been in there so long that they had forgotten about God and didn't know how to worship God. So God's showing them, I'm strong. Here he's saying, I'm going to show you that I'm stronger than their gods. Uh, we read the same thing through the book of Judges, where they go, and such and such people said, well, they do, their God defeated the, the God of the valley, but our God's the God of the mountains. He can't take us. We're, we're going to be stronger. Our God's the God of the river. We, he's not going to be able to take us. And we don't really understand this mentality in our day because we are pretty much in the idea of monotheism, that there's only one God. Uh, we don't know what it used to be like in the days of polytheism. Okay? You had a God for everything. And I, I listened to a guy telling a story about how a trip to the city, to go buy, go, go buy stuff at the city. He goes, you leave your house and you make an offering to your God of your home so that he'll protect your home. You get out to the street and you offer, you offer a God, an offering to the God of travel because you need to be protected while you're traveling. You get to the edge of the woods and you make an offering to the God of the woods so that he'll protect, protect you. You get to the river where you've got to cross and you make a God, an offering to the, river of the, God, the, the God of the river so that you could cross the river safely. You know, we don't understand this mentality, but this is what was going on even in this day. Israel has not been putting out the monotheistic God, you know, because they look at Gentiles and the other rest of the world as totally worthless. In the Gentiles' mind, they're going to, in the Jews' mind, they're going to heaven, the Gentiles are all going to hell, and there's no hope for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're making no effort to go out and, and talk to the Gentiles. As far as they're concerned, God does not love the Gentiles. He doesn't care about the Gentiles. He just created them so they could go straight to hell. That's their attitude. And we see here that Moab is fighting this battle of, okay, we're under attack. We're going to go to our gods, <laughs> which makes sense. If you really truly believe your gods, you should be going to your gods and asking for help. What happens in America so often when, when bad times happen? People supposedly turn to God or accuse God. How can God let this happen to us? Well, you're reaping what you've sown. If we reap 
reap bad things, we reap sin and uh, sow sin, we're going to reap the consequences of all that activity. And then people will turn around and blame God. God, you let all this bad stuff happen to me. Well, you're not even one of my children. You're not, you're not obeying me. Why should I keep these things from happening? And even if we are his children, he's going to let things happen to us because he wants to say, do you trust me? Because remember, we've talked about this. When we go through hard times, God is putting a big question mark. Do you believe, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God? And the second part is, do you believe he's sovereign? Okay. And these are the questions that are asked when we, when we go through hard times. Do we believe? And that's what all these things are all about. Do you really believe? Or as the Truth Project, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? And God puts us through tests all the time to say, are you going to trust me? Do you really believe that I'm sovereign, that I'm in control, or do you think somehow I've lost my marbles and, and gone on a vacation? And a lot of people kind of think that God has lost all those marbles and gone on vacation so oftentimes. But God is saying, I have a plan. All things will work out for good. And we need to really be able to grab hold of that. And if we have that in our mind, that all things work out together for good, that God is good, and he has a good plan, then no matter what we go through, we go, okay, God, I don't. And, and like I say, you might be able to say, God, I don't understand any of this. None of this makes sense. I don't understand what you're doing. But I trust you. I trust that you have got a good plan. And I've only got 48 years under my belt, but I've never seen God not fulfill his word in people's lives. Okay, he's always got a good plan. Now, I realize my 48 years is very short, but I also have almost 4,000 years in this book where God has honored his, honored his will. So my experience matches what the Bible says, so I'm going to stand on God that he has a good plan and he knows what's going, what's going on and that he allows it for whatever reason. And because he knows the beginning from the end, he really knows what's good for us when we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we think about this, as the younger ones aren't going to really understand this as much as the older ones, but you know, when sometimes we, when we were young, we prayed for something, and we, and we get later on in our life, and we realize, God, I am so glad you did not answer that prayer. God, I am really glad that you said no to this. When we get far enough out, we need to really understand, God knows the beginning from the end. When we think we want something, God says, no, you don't want what you thought you wanted. And that, you know, and it, when we're in the middle of it, we go, you know, even no matter how old we are, we act just like children. Oh, God, you just don't want me to have all, you know, you, know, you don't want me to have fun. <laughs> and we need to be careful about that attitude. God has nothing but good in mind for us. You know, and the more we believe that, the better we, off we are. We have the statement, you know, God is good all the time and all the time God is good and we really need it's a nice little statement but we need to believe it when we're going through hard times we need to believe God is good now God is not sitting up there in heaven saying well how much trouble can I make this person endure just for the fun of it okay that is not God you know he is not up there saying I just want to put this person through as much trial and tribulation as possible just to see just to see how much they can endure that's not his goal he wants to give us blessings. He wants to give us good. But he also wants to make sure that we're willing to trust him. And it's a, it's a rough time sometimes to trust him. It really is. It's not an easy thing sometimes to trust him. Um, and so he says they're, they're going up to their high places to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo. And Nebo is a mountain up on the top uh, northeast part of the Dead Sea. It's Mount Nebo. Uh, it's mentioned a lot in the scriptures. It was a high mountain that overlooks all of Israel, and it was a great place. It is where, where Moses gets to see the promised land before he's allowed, when God says, you're not coming in. He went up on the mountain and was able to see all of the promised land, and God says, okay, now we're going to take you, take you away, and he buries him. Nebo. Nebo. Yeah, it's up in Reuben, north, north, northeast corner of uh, Dead Sea. Oh, okay. And over Medaba, 
on their head shall be baldness. And Medibah is just to the east of Mount Nebo. So again, we have a kind of east-west uh, statement here because uh, Moab is not really a wide country. So here we have, you know, from, from the westernmost side to the easternmost side of Moab is they're going to be weeping. And then it gets something kind of interesting that we don't fully understand. There shall be baldness on their heads and every beard cut off. In the Orient, especially especially the Middle, Mid Middle East, but even in Orient in, in general, you did not... Cut, you did not cut your hair bald and you did not cut your beard. All right? If you cut your beard, it was for various religious reasons. The Jews, especially the Orthodox Jews, don't cut their beards. They don't even trim their beards because there's a verse in Leviticus that says don't, don't trim your beards, but, which is taken out of context of what it means, but they don't trim their beards. So if you trimmed your beard and, and shaved your head, it was in, re, it was in mourning and repentance. All right. Yeah, you tore your clothes. You, you, but it, the extreme was that you shaved off your beard, you cut your hair. The Nazarite vow was that they would not cut their hair until their oath was fulfilled. And when they did, they would shave their hair, they would trim their beard. In their case, it was just a celebration. God, it's over. My oath is over. In this case, it's talking about the repentance. We're, we're in mourning. And this is an extreme warning. This is not done every time they mourn, but this is when you see that statement and it's taken three times in the scripture, things are bad. Mm -hmm. Things are really bad because it's also used in Jeremiah to show that the people are in mourning because they're being persecuted and the, and the Babylonians are coming to take them into captivity. And they shave their heads and trim their beards saying, God, please, we're, we're sorry. And at which point it was too late. God was saying, nope, I've declared the judgment on you and we've put up, I've put up with you for, for a thousand years and I'm now done with you. So it's them going up to their mountaintops, weeping before their gods, coming down into this, this place of repentance. I mean, you know, we're shaving our hair, we're, we're cutting our beards, we're, we're trying to show repentance. Only problem is they're showing them to the wrong gods. They're going to their God and God says, I don't care what you do to your God. You're not praying to me. And there is this point where God just backs off and says, you're getting what you deserve, and it, you've gone beyond. And where that point is, no nation ever truly knows, because God can work a great repentance. And Israel is a great example. He had, they would fall away, God, they would repent, and God would build them back up. They'd fall away, and they would build up. And then eventually God said to, to the northern kingdom, no, I've had enough of you. You're going into captivity. And then... 150, 200 years later, he said to the, Jew, to the, to the North, southern kingdom, I've had enough of you too. You're going into captivity. And we've seen this over the centuries of different nations that rise up in great power and then all of a sudden fall flat on their face. And it happens over and over again in, throughout history. And for America, we're on that brink right now. If we don't repent, God is going to take us out as a nation with any power. Now, we've had two great revivals in America and one small one with the Jesus movement, and there is possibility that we can have another movement, another revival. I don't know whether we're going to or not. It's a possibility. I'm not going to uh, uh, rule it out. But God is under no obligation to give us another no, revival. With the sins that this country is committing as a whole, we deserve the punishment. All the things that we do that we say are okay and good and God calls sin eventually there's going to be judgment for all this and we're going to see we need as church as christians to be bowing our heart bringing revival bringing more people in the church seeing god move within the churches because if it won't start in the churches for people to take a stand for god right. nothing's going to happen in this country so we've got this problem developing in our country right. will it change i don't know i'm going to pray that it does right. i don't hold much hope out for it but I'm going to pray that God changes it because I'd like to see my grandson be raised up in a semi-righteous country. So we've got all these things in verse 3. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone shall howl weeping abundantly. Sackcloth. We would say kind of burlap. Okay, it's very itchy. It's uncomfortable. They're clothing themselves in this sackcloth which again shows repentance, sorrow. And it says, 
they're in their sackcloth on the tops of their houses, in the streets. In other words, everybody everywhere in the land is, is, is in repentance. And it doesn't appear that God's going to listen to them. Again, they're not calling out to the right God. They went to their gods. When Jonah went to Nineveh and he said, repent for in, in, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed, they repented and prayed to God and God spared Nineveh for about 200 years because they repented to the right God. With the right attitude in the right place, they repented. Here, these people aren't repenting to the right God. They're, they, they are sorry. You know, they are sorry. They're all in sackcloth. They're all on their, on their rooftops. They're in the streets. Everywhere you see, they're in sackcloths and, and weeping abundantly. And abundantly here literally means prostate. So they're on their face. Okay. They are sorry. They are worried about what's going on, but it's not to God. And in the process, they're going to end up suffering because of this. Verse 4, And Heshbon shall cry, and Elahale, their voice shall be heard, even unto Jehaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out, and his life shall be grievous unto him. So Heshbon is this little city right on the edge of the of uh, Reuben right under the word Ammon on the east, uh, east side of there. Heshbon and Jehaz is straight south of that. <laughs> so once you find Heshbon, go straight south and you'll find Jehaz. And it says, there's going to be a cry, a cry of distress. And it's going to be so bad, and you got to think about this, so bad that the armed soldiers, the brave men, are crying out in distress and despair. Now that takes a lot to get the soldiers <laughs> The men are the warriors, and these are armed. These guys, these just aren't men that are picked up out of the street and given a given a sword, a spear, or something. These are the armed men. This is the army of Moab that's trained. Okay, the armed men, the, the men that they're crying out in distress, and it says their life shall be grievous, or they shall be trembling. Okay, they are so afraid that they're trembling, they're quaking at the knees. Okay, this is quite a picture. The ones that are supposed to defend your country are scared to death. Okay, that is a pretty bad place to be when your defenders are so afraid that they're ready to run. All right, and this is, we see in most of the cases when we see the newscasts and everything, we see the police, we see the fire, we see the military going into the battle the way they're trained. This is indicating these guys are ready to run. They're not ready to go into what it is that they've been asked to, to go into. And it says, verse 5, My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar, the heifer of three years old. For by the mounting up of Lithid with weeping shall they go up. In, for in the way of Horonim they shall rise up the cry of destruction. The heart, the innermost seat of emotions. Deep down in the very seat of who they are, they're crying out. Again, they're not crying out to God. You know, they're, they're doing everything they're supposed to do. How many times do we hear people say, well, God is a God of love. He'll forgive. You know, well, yes, God is a God of love, and yes, he will forgive, but we have to do it on his terms. He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. If we don't go through Jesus Christ... He won't forgive because we're not doing it his way. And we see this a lot. I see that, I've seen this in workplaces, you know, where the employees go, well, I, I did what you asked. You did not do what I asked. I told you to do this. Well, I, I, I did something like it. <laughs> you know, no, not quite. You, you didn't do. Uh, at the prison, the guys will go, well, you know, I, I showed up. I was only two and a half hours late to the class, but I did show up. So you were out of place. You didn't do the way you were told. And we have to understand God has a way for us to do it. And that is through Jesus Christ and him only. And there are so many people that make God the way they want him to be. You know, they either have this picture of God as so evil and wicked that all he wants to do is crush us for anything we do and he has no love, no compassion, or they go way the other direction and say, well, God loves us so much that we can do anything and all people are going to go to heaven because he just loves us so much he, he wouldn't send anybody to hell. Well, God is in the center. 
Okay? Yes, he is completely love, and he would love to forgive everybody, but because of his holiness and his righteousness, he demands the justice to be paid. He poured out all of his anger and wrath on Jesus on the cross so that he can forgive us. But he's not going to forgive us just for the sake of forgiving. You can't go out and, and do everything you want to do and live the way you want and say, well, God's just going to take me because of Jesus' death. Because then we go and stand before him, as Isaiah 63 says, dressed in our own righteousness, which God declares as filthy rags. When people that think they're going, they can do good enough to please God, stand before God, he's going to say, oh, here you are. Oh, you got a bunch of filthy rags on you. That's the best man can do. The best that we can do is filthy rags before God. That's why we must be in Christ through, his, through him being saved. And he says, as a heifer of three years old. Now, this is a statement that's used frequently. A heifer of three years old. Before three years old, a heifer was not used, or a young cow was not used for pulling a yoke. It was not, it was basically free. It wasn't, it had never been muzzled and never worked. So he goes, you've been free up until now, and now you're going to pay the price. God gives us plenty of rope to hang ourselves, if you want to, you want to put it that way. You know, people will go, well, why does that person seem to get away with everything? They don't follow God, and look, they've got money, they've got fame, they've got this, and God is really good about saying, okay, I'm going to give you lots of room. I'm going to give you lots of room to make your decisions on what you want to do, but there's eventually an end to that rope. An end to the rope that he says there is judgment to come. Peter denies Jesus, and he runs away. Okay? And when Jesus comes and talks to him, he has an option. He can repent and turn back to Jesus, or he can go the route of Judas Iscariot, who never even gave him the opportunity to be forgiven. He went out and said, this is so bad, I'm going to hang myself, and ended up not, not being a follower of Jesus out of the deal. Peter goes, okay, God, <laughs> yes, you, you, you are the only way I can, can come to you. God continually does this. Even in our lives as Christians, he gives us enough rope to make bad decisions. <laughs> Okay, how many people have ended up in a backslidden state because God says, okay, your decision, I'm not going to sit there and twist your arm to be obedient to me. And we waste a lot of our lives so often arguing with God and fighting with God. And God keeps us with the same problem until we finally repent. And I've shared with you, there was a time when I fought for six years with God before I finally said, okay, God, now, does that mean I was way off in left field and sit? No, it just meant in one area of my life, I was way off fighting with God all the time. Now, I have met people who fought with God for decades. But maturity says that we learn to respond to God quickly. When we raise our children, we're hoping they get to the point that all we have to do is tell them what they should do and watch them be obedient. You know, as a parent, the last thing we want to do is be spanking our kids when they're 16, 17 years old. It's too late to be spanking them. If they're not responding by then, it's really too late. So our goal is to get them mature. Okay, you're making decisions that are godly. You're coming to God and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Until so often we make, as human beings, make a lot of bad decisions. A lot of decisions based on what we think is good. You know, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. And then verse 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Way too often, we put our trust in our own understanding. And we have a real big problem, because our understanding is a very microscopic part of time. Okay? We do not know what's coming our way. We might think we know. Okay? God, I've got plans to do this, 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 and this over the next week. And God says, well, tonight you're going to die. Whoa. Okay? Uh, not necessarily, but he might. You know, Jesus told this parable of the, of the rich man who, who harvested so much produce Instead of giving it to God or giving it to the poor, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build new barns so that I can hold all my produce. And God says, you fool, this night your soul will be demanded of you. you know, that doesn't mean we don't make plans for the future. It doesn't mean we don't make plans. It just means we put our faith in what God has in store for us.
you know, it doesn't mean we don't put money away for retirement. It doesn't mean we don't put money away for a rainy day and, or an emergency. But we don't put our trust in either one of them. Because the stock market and the, and the savings and the banks could close down tomorrow. And we're on the brink. If you look at the news, we're on the brink of our economy falling. And all these people who have lots of money in the bank trusting in their money are going to be in trouble when that happens. It's not an if it happens, it's when it happens. It might not happen in our lifetime, but we're seeing that it's going to happen. And we see historically that it's happened in the past. So what is our trust in? You know, what is our trust in? Is it in God or is it in our stuff? Is it in our idols? And all of us have some kind of idol usually in our life. That, and how do we know what, what's an idol? Well, we look at what, what do we spend all of our time doing? What do, what, what do we spend our money doing? For some people, it's their hobbies. They spend all their money and time on their hobbies. Other people, it is literally God. They read the scriptures. They spend time with God. Uh, for a lot of people, it's their television. Now, it's been said that people are spending four hours a day on the television, and if you figure they're also working, that's 12 hours out of their day. They sleep for eight. That means there's about four hours a day that they're not watching television. And I know many people who are watching television that four hours of the day. You know, because it is their God. That is how they entertain themselves. And God said, what is your God? The Moabites were going to the wrong gods. And God was saying, you're going to follow me. And it says, they're weeping. They're weeping. Their fugitives shall flee to Zoar. And Zoar is way down south at the bottom of the Dead Sea. In other words, they're leading Moab. They're leading Moab. They're, they're running as fugitives. And we would say the word refugees in our day and age. Uh, you know, they're refugees. They're running from, their, from the troubles, trying to get someplace where there may not be trouble. And God says he's following them there. Uh, he shall raise up the destruction even there. And Horim and Luther are right up against the Dead Sea between between the Arnon and the Zoar. So this is their path that they're running down. It's, it's not on there, the uh, cities that aren't mentioned, but, the, but it's going up, upward. And it says, for the waters of Nimrin shall be desolate. And Nimrin's a river that they don't quite know exactly where, it, where in Moab it is. But it's a river. And it says, that river shall run with blood. Now, that's a lot of slain people for the river to run with blood. And we see that God says there's going to be that much death. And because the water is not running, the hay is going to go, be wasted because there's no water to water the, the hay. And then it says, there shall be no green thing. The destruction of this area of vegetation. Now for us that live here in, in the desert, we kind of know what it is to not see green things until the rain falls. And then we see green. Lately, we've been seeing a lot more green than I've seen in the last 13 years around here. But you know, we know what it's like to not see, and this is what he's saying, it's going to become desolate. But it's a thing that they're not used to. They're used to having the grass and the green and, and all, and God's saying, I'm going to dry it up. This is talking about a pretty severe punishment. The people are dying, the, the ground is, is being taken away, the produce is being taken away, Verse 7 says, therefore the abundance that they have gotten and that which they have laid up shall, be carried to, shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. And this indicates that they've gotten rich. Moab has been fairly rich. They're, they're marauders. They've, they've been able to conquer a lot of things. They've got produce that they're bringing in. And it says it's going to be carried away to the brook of the willows, which literally means the valley of the Arabians, which means it's going east <laughs> into Arabia. And it's not on the map. It just means they're going into Arabia. They're, they're, they're going east. Yeah, so to, to the right on your map. <laughs> to, to the right on your map. Their stuff is being carried out of Moab. Whether by them or by others, it's not really sure. I think because it's going to Arabia when, everybody, when the fugitives were going to Zorar, that it's going into captivity with, the, with an enemy. So they've been... They have lost their status. They're losing their status. And it says, all that you have, all that you put your hope in, you gathered all this stuff, you hoarded it away, I'm taking it away. 
And if you've ever been there, God is capable of doing that to us. If we think that we can trust in something, God oftentimes takes it away and says, uh, your trust was in the wrong things. It wasn't in me. Now, that, does that mean God doesn't want us to have money, doesn't want us to have things? No, he doesn't care if we have things as long as we put our trust in him and not our stuff. Okay? And that's the whole key to this. What is our hope in? If your hope is in your stuff, God's going to take it away. Every time, if your hope is in the stuff, he's going to take away the stuff. Uh, now, there have been people that have gotten very wealthy, but their hope was not in their stuff. Uh, J.C. Penney, Sears and Roebuck, uh, the founder of uh, Caterpillar, they were all millionaires, and they all had something in common. They gave away 90% of everything they had to God. And they started out, God, you said you want to give you 10. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the 10, and you get the 90. And God blessed them. And they kept that in their mind, that God gets the, the majority of it. And God blessed them. Now, if they had ever come along and said, okay, God, I'm a millionaire. I don't need to give you as much, then God probably would have taken everything back away from them. Because he blessed them, and they decided to follow their blessing. And I have seen this happen over the years. Somebody gets given all kinds of material benefits because of their serving of God. They get the nice house. They get the, get the car or two. And they get the, the, the quad and the tennis courts and the, and the summer house and the beach house and the boat. And then after a while, you don't see them around church anymore. And you go, well, where have you been? Well, I've been up at the, the summer cottage. I've been out on the, on the lake. I've been here. I've been there. All of a sudden, their stuff has become their God and they have forgotten God. Does that mean they always lose it? Not always, but many times they do. But they have exchanged their God for another God. And this is what we need to be careful of. And it is so easy to do. It is so easy to decide that, okay, God, I don't need you as much. You know, God, when I was poor, I really needed you because I needed food on the table. I needed a roof over my head. I needed this, that, and the other thing. So I, I prayed. I even gave you tithes, God. It wasn't much. I, I got my $20. I gave you $2, God, and, and I depended on everything. And then you get a good job. And you're making $500 a week. You didn't make that much the whole time when you were poor, but you know, now you've got it and you go, God, I don't know. $50 is an awful lot to give you, God. I'm going to give you 10 you know, because I, I need to buy my food and I need to pay. Yeah. And God's going, didn't I provide for you when you were poor? I can provide for you later. But over and over again, people get this attitude of once God gets there, gets them re the rewards that they stop following and honoring God. And we need to be careful of that because it's an easy temptation. God, uh, I can pay for my stuff now. You know, God, I, I, can, I can pay. I don't have to pray anymore for my, for my stuff. So, you know, and God's saying, well, please keep honoring me. You know, I blessed you. Keep honoring me. Keep the blessing going to God. And, and I understand it. Believe me, I understand. You know, you start making money and your offerings start becoming $300, $400, $500, you know, because you're making that much money. And it's like, uh, God, you know, this tithe that I'm giving you would pay my, pay my mortgage. This tithe that I'm paying you would uh, pay my car bill. And that is when the test comes. Am I going to stay faithful to God when I have much or not? And this is important for us because he says, your stuff, your stuff is going to be carried away. Moab, your stuff. You've been dependent on your stuff. You thought you were rich. You thought you were wealthy. I'm going to take it away in a heartbeat. Uh, in the tribulation period, it, book of Revelation tells us that the economy is going to be so bad that a loaf of bread buys gold. Okay? That's pretty bad. And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, when, if I'm in the tribulation period, I'll just, I'll barter. You know, when bread is your commodity to, to get stuff, here, you're not going to have much leeway because what do you use bread for? Eating to survive. Your, your commodity that can buy the gold is something that you need to, to eat to survive. And this is important. The, another time that the gold was worthless was in the days of Solomon. He said that silver was so plenteous it was like dust. You know, Here, I got a bag of silver, so what? 
know, I've got gold. Well, no, no real big deal, but at least gold has some value. It's, it's worth about what silver, what we would consider silver to be. That's how rich Israel was in the time of Solomon. So all of this stuff is very much transient. It's only worth what people think it's worth in the first place. When you're hungry, gold and gems and everything are not, not worth a whole lot, especially if they won't buy much food. You know, and it's been said, you know, how much would you pay for a glass of water? Well, here in Chloride, we probably wouldn't pay much for a glass of water because we'll just go to the tap or the hose or, or someplace and get water. But what if you were in the middle of the Sahara Desert, literally the middle of the Sahara Desert, and somebody offered you a cup of water? How much is that water worth now? Right. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, I think I'll crawl out of the desert somehow without, without the water. I'm going to keep my, keep my wealth. God is saying, I'm the one you're supposed to be worshiping. I'm the one that you're supposed to be having your hope in. And very important for us to keep that hope in him in spite of whatever blessing or depravity we have. Our hope is in God, and he will provide all our needs. Now in America, we think our needs are a lot more than, than God sometimes thinks our needs are. Uh, I've been places in my lifetime where if somebody had a bowl of rice for breakfast and a bowl of rice and, a, and some vegetables at night, they thought they were living luxuriously. You know, if we, if we had a bowl of rice for breakfast and a bowl of rice in the afternoon with a small amount of vegetables, we would think we were being so deprived in America. You know, in America, we've got to have our slab of meat on the side of it as well and, and a big plate of vegetables. And, you know, that's how we think in general. And God is saying, no, needs. Where are you at with this? Huh? Well, yes, we're spoiled. And that's a very clear... We are spoiled in America, and the message that we get from so many churches is if you follow God, he's going to bless you and make you rich and, and abundant, and that's not what he says in the scriptures. You know, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. So if we're standing for God, the world's going to hate us because we're going to tell them, uh, sorry, that's sin. Sorry, that doesn't honor God. You know, we're in a day and age where Living together is okay. God calls it fornication. You know, he calls the world calls homosexuality okay. God calls it a sin. He calls adultery a sin, and people go, well, it's no, not that really a big deal. You know, oh, you're a thief. Well, maybe you're a kleptomaniac. You just can't help yourself. You've got a sickness. It's still sin. It's called in God. But in our day and age, you understand, everything that God calls a sin the world is listing as a sickness. Right. You know, I don't have an adultery or fornication problem. I have an addiction to sex. I just can't help myself. And that's a, that's a psychological disorder. So as long as people can say it's a sickness, there's no need to repent. And the world is turning everything into a sickness. You're no longer a drunk. You're an alcoholic suffering from this disease of alcoholism. Okay, and I just can't help myself. I'm sick. Satan is changing everything that God says is a sin into a sickness. And then the next step is to make it okay. To make it just okay. It's just another, another way of lifestyle. This is why we have to hold on to God's word. And this is why Christians will be hated as we hold on to God's word and say, sorry, this is sin. God calls it a sin. Verse 8, for the cry has gone around about the borders of Moab and the howling thereof unto Iglaim and the howling thereof unto Berylim. And these are other cities that are, that are marked around, around here. They're, they're down between Zor and, and the word Edom. They're not marked on it. But he says all around Moab the cry is going up. Again, they're crying to the wrong God. They're crying to the wrong place. But they're crying. <laughs> they're They're crying. And then I stand before God and say, you know what? We cried. We were repentant. And he goes, no, you weren't repentant to me. You weren't, you weren't doing things the way I told you. And for the waters of Demon shall be full of blood, and I will bring upon more upon Demon. So it's already full of blood, and I'm going to bring more into it. This is a lot of death. This is a lot of death that God's bringing upon them. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, lions will get those that escape. <laughs> Okay, if you manage to escape all the other things I've got, 
they're going to be attacked by lions. And, you know, and upon the remnant of the land, upon Moab and upon the remnant, God sends lions. And he says, okay, you get away from all this other judgment, now you're going to have natural catastrophes upon you. you know, and this is when God brings judgment upon a nation, there's really no hope once, it, once that judgment. Now, there will always be a remnant of God's people in existence. If there were anybody that, in Moab that followed God, a remnant of them would have, would have got, come out. God has always kept a remnant. Even when Israel went into captivity, there was a remnant of people that obeyed and followed him. Some were left in the land, some went into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, and Mesh Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego went into captivity into Babylon and honored God there and was able to bring Nebuchadnezzar to, to a relationship with God. You know, but there was a remnant. There's been a remnant of Israel always. As Christians, there's always been a remnant as the, church, as the church has waned and fallen away and become reprobate in its walkings, there's been a remnant that follows God. And we saw that through the dark ages where they were trying to crush out anything that believed in the Bible. And then the Renaissance came and then Luther came along and says, this is what God says, the just shall live by faith. He said, we need to live what the Bible says, not what church doctrine is. And we saw a renaissance of the church coming up. And people, and now we're seeing again where the church seems to be falling away as a, as a group. And believe me, it's sad as, for me as a Christian to look around and see there's so many churches that are naming themselves to be Christians that don't believe the Bible. Okay? They don't believe the Bible is God's word. They don't believe that Jesus died for their sins. And yet they'll call themselves Christians. And I'm going, well, what is it that you're believing? You know, if you're not believing the Bible, if you're not believing that Jesus died for your sins and you're calling yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, what is it that you're believing in? And most of them don't have answers to that. And we look at this and says, God destroys. But he does leave a remnant. Even during the tribulation period after the church has been taken out, there's a remnant that is following God. God rises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists to, to evangelize, and people turn to God during the period of one of the worst judgments of God over the world, aside from the Noadic deluge, the flood that destroys the world. The, the tribulation period is going to be the worst time. And we've talked about this when we studied the book of Revelation. 66% of the population at the time of, of the beginning of the tribulation will die. Two out of every three people will die during that period of time. Sounds a little reminiscent of what God did to, jo to Moab. Okay? And Moab it sounds like it's a lot more than 66%, but, but God, when he brings judgment, death is part of it because of the rejection that they've made of him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. You have given your son to die for our sins. Lord, we ask that you keep us, protect us. Help us to stand forward in your glory and your strength. Because when we abide in you, you give us your son's righteousness. You give us the strength of the Holy Spirit living in us. And you give us the power to overcome sin and the power to be overcomers. Even in death, we are overcomers because we go straight to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.